Oh, hi. My name is Didymus. You might know me as Thomas. Okay, Doubting Thomas. But you'd have doubts too if you had seen what I saw. Jesus wasn't the Messiah that we Jews were expecting. We were expecting Messiah the King to ride in and conquer the Romans. But look who showed up. A guy. An ordinary guy. Jesus wasn't a king. And as for conquering the Romans, he didn't have a bit of military experience. The prophet Isaiah said that Messiah would be king of kings. We Jews were expecting God himself. Our conquering king was a carpenter. So tell me, wouldn't you be a little skeptical if you were expecting God himself and all you got was some guy riding a donkey with calluses on his hands? Jesus started claiming that he was God. Then he said that he was also the son of God who's in heaven. And just when we Jews got used to this whole thing of these two persons being one God, Jesus starts talking about the Holy Spirit and how the Holy Spirit is God too. I didn't know what to do. So I studied the scripture. And what I found is that the Hebrew word for God is a plural noun. And it always has a singular verb. It seems that God always refers to himself as more than one person. We Jews, eh, we just figured he was using bad grammar. But me, I wasn't convinced. A few years ago, a false messiah came in and led hundreds of people out into the desert. And they all died. Loyalty is one thing. But gullible? Not me. I was still skeptical. Well, a little later, Jesus got himself arrested. And then beaten. And then killed. Now that whole thing about the three persons being one God, it may have been true. But there's no way that God would have allowed any part of himself to be killed. Three days after Jesus died, some of my friends said that they saw Jesus walking around. <laughs> I told them, I said, look, if he asked you to follow him out into the desert, run for the hills. <laughs> As for me, the only way that I would believe would be if I could take my finger and put it into his hands where the nails were and put my hand into his side where the spear went in. Well, about a week later, a bunch of us, we got together for supper and poof! This guy appears. Now, I just thought it was all done with smoke and mirrors. But then he comes over to me and he puts out his hand and he says, Thomas, put your finger here. And then he pulled away his tunic and he says, put your hand here. This wasn't smoke and mirrors. This was flesh and blood. Stop doubting and believe, he said. My Lord and my God. Then he said to me, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet still believe. And then he vanished. You can call me Doubting Thomas if you want to. But as for me, I don't doubt anymore. I've seen the Son of God and he's alive. Good to have you with us. Uh, we're reviving our drama department there if you would like to be a part of that. Um, you can talk with Ted. You, there's information in the bulletin there. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to John chapter 20. We'll be looking at verses 24 through 31. We're wrapping up our teaching series here this morning, Doubts and Answers. And we're answering the question, what should I do with my doubts? In this series, we have been examining the reasons behind the Christian faith. And we established kind of the foundation at the very beginning that the Christian faith is both head sound and heart satisfying. 
Uh, it's intellectually sound for any thinking person, and it's uh, experientially satisfying. And you really need to have both of those playing in your life. Head without heart is dead orthodoxy, and uh, heart without head, the intellect, is just sentimentality. And so you really need both of those if you're going to survive the storms of life. And let me kind of give you a summary statement, and then um, we'll pray and we'll head into our text here this morning. Um, I believe, and this is what I've tried to uh, convince you of, I believe that the evidence surrounding the claims of Christianity is simply overwhelming. I'm convinced of that. And its message is, is simply irresistible. And yet, once you come to that conclusion, you can still have doubts. You can still struggle with doubts. So what do you do with your doubts? Um, how many have ever seen the movie uh, Signs? Signs? Mel Gibson. There's a scene in that movie where Mel Gibson and Joaquin Phoenix, I believe is his name, uh, they're sitting there, it's real quiet. And if you're familiar with the story is that Mel Gibson was a pastor who who just had his faith devastated because of the loss of his wife. And there's this quiet scene in that movie where they're talking, and Mel Gibson basically says uh, to Joaquin, that's not his name in the, he's a, he, that's the character in the movie, he says, there is no one watching out for us. There is no one watching out for us. We're all on our own. I mean, that was the conclusion he came to because of the devastation that happened to him. Maybe you've struggled with that. You've kind of looked around, you thought, wow, if God's watching out for me, why did this go down in my life? What is this all about? Maybe we really are on our own. If you've ever struggled with those kind of doubts, those are kind of normal. I'm going to talk to you about how to work through that, and uh, that's where we're headed with our study this morning. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's begin with a word of prayer, then we'll dive into our text. Father God, we pray this morning that you would open our eyes, that we may behold wondrous things out of your word. You are a rewarder of those who diligently seek you, and we've come to seek you this morning. These words that we are about to study were written so that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we may have life in his name. So grant that to us, we pray, in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Take a look at this text. Basically, uh, it was just acted out for you here. And so let's read through this text, a powerful text. And it begins in verse 24. We'll read all the way to the end of the chapter, chapter 20. Now, Thomas, one of the 12 called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe and then uh, it says, eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. And although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen 
and yet have believed. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. This is the word of the Lord to us this morning. So let me kind of walk you through some statements here to help you walk through those doubts in your life when you feel like, wow, man, maybe, maybe no one is watching out for me. Why am I struggling? Um, how do I get through this? Here's your first statement on your notes. The opposite of faith isn't doubt but unbelief. And you need to understand that. You'll notice that in our text in verse 27, Jesus rebukes Thomas for his unbelief. Now, some translations will say doubt, but actually this is unbelief that he has. It's not actually doubt. I'm going to define the difference between the two. You need to know the difference. But Jesus rebukes Thomas for his unbelief and in essence says that it wasn't necessary for him to see him to believe. And you see that in in verse uh, 29. He says, have you believed? So so verse, uh, verse 27 is where he says, do not disbelieve. Stop with your unbelief. Start believing. So he's, he's uh, actually really rebuking him. And then he goes on and you, when he says, have you believed because you have seen? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So he's, in essence, he's saying, you didn't have to see me to believe. There are those that, that haven't seen me that won't see me and they will still believe. And that's, that's what he's getting at here. Um, but the reason why that Thomas had to see him and, and Jesus reveals himself to him is because Thomas was one of the apostles and for qualifications to be uh, and for apostolic commissioning that they had to have seen the resurrected Lord and Savior. Now, if you read the, the verses prior to this is that all the disciples had seen the resurrected Lord and Savior. Thomas was not with them during that time. So Jesus is revealing himself to Thomas, not for the sake of belief as much as for the sake of his apostolic commissioning. Because the Bible makes it very clear that our foundation of our faith is on the apostles and the prophets. Ephesians 2.20 says that. That these guys got special treatment, that they encountered the resurrected Lord and Savior. So, so the texts that we read here are written by the apostles who encountered the resurrected Lord and Savior. So they had that special authority, and that was the reason why he revealed himself to him. But just to believe, it wasn't necessary. Now, let me give you a definition. Unbelief is willful refusal to believe. Doubt is indecision between belief and unbelief. So unbelief is just a willful decision. I'm not going to believe. Doubt is somewhere in between belief and unbelief. And when you have doubt, it just means, hey, what, what you're wanting to put your faith in is really important to you. This is often how I do it, and this is how I can tell where a person is when people are asking questions or I'm, I'm working through some issues with folks, is that doubt will ask sincere questions. Unbelief refuses to hear the answers. You guys tracking with me on that? So sometimes people will approach me and they have unbelief. There's no matter what I say to them, it's almost like don't confuse me with the facts I've already made up my mind. And I've done, and I've, I've just discussed it. I had that with some Mormon friends as I was trying to explain the facts. This is what the Bible says. This is how it's different from the Book of Mormon and, and, and your other documents. And, and they just, it was almost like, I don't want to hear it. I've already made up my mind. It was, it was total unbelief. It wasn't doubt. They weren't struggling. They weren't working through those issues. This is what it tells us in John 3, 19. I think it's one of your cross-references there. And this is the judgment. And this is what Jesus is saying. Here's the verdict. It's like the judge slamming the gavel on the bench, just boom. 
Here's the verdict. The light has come into the world, but men prefer darkness over light. In other words, Jesus is saying, hey, there's plenty of evidence for any thinking person, as long as they don't commit intellectual suicide. And, and that's the verdict. But the verdict, the verdict is, though there is plenty of light, men prefer darkness over light. So unbelief is a, is a choice that we make. Now, it also tells us that in Romans 1.20, that we are without an excuse. Now, doubt, because it's in between belief and unbelief, it can either take you to unbelief or it can take you to belief, depending on how you respond um, respond to your doubt. It is interesting, interestingly, uh, that there were many of the old-time biggest unbelievers, such as atheists, such uh, atheists as Karl Marx, Sigmund Freud, Bertrand Russell, Jean-Paul Sartre, Frederick Nietzsche, Albert Camus, among others, listen to this, had their father die or abandoned them when they were young or had serious conflict with him. What does that tell you? These guys were atheists. They had unbelief. Your earthly father certainly helps to shape your concept of your heavenly father. And where there is distrust, doubt is soon to follow. But if you don't deal with the doubt, it can push you towards, as these guys were pushed towards, that distrust which led to doubt, which leads to unbelief, led them to unbelief to reject this idea of God as Father. But as I said, not only can doubt either lead you to unbelief, but it can also lead you towards belief. A guy by the name of Gary Parker, he calls it this, uh, this quote that I have, he calls it the gift of doubt. He says, if faith never encounters doubt, if truth never struggles with error, if good never battles with evil, how can faith know its own power? In my own pilgrimage, if I have to choose between a faith that has stared doubt in the eye and made it blink, or a naive faith that has never known the firing line of faith, I will choose the former every time. So what is he saying? He's saying that doubt can actually be a very positive thing working in our lives. And in fact, a faith that has not been challenged by doubts is a naive faith that will be defenseless against tragedy and smart skeptics. But it's how you deal with your doubt. Are you allowing your doubt to push you in the direction of unbelief, or are you going to allow it to push you in the direction of belief? In belief. And so the opposite of faith isn't doubt, but unbelief. And, And so as you look at your doubts and as you work through your doubts, you want them to head in the direction towards belief. How do you do that? Next point in your notes. Faith is not the absence of questions, doubts, and fears. But faith is bringing your questions, doubts, and fears to God. So it's not the absence of these things. If you have faith, it doesn't mean that you're not going to, you know, you're, you're going to still struggle with these things. But faith is bringing your questions, doubts, and fears to God. Notice in verse 26, Thomas continues to hang out with the disciples. Even with his unbelief, he continues to hang with the disciples, which I believe that the safest place you should be able to come to should be the, the community of, of faith or the community of believers. In, in, in your small group where you can share with people say, man, I just have a lot of unbelief right now. I'm really struggling with this in my life. I have these fears happening in my life. And, and that should be the case. And you see that happening here because he's continuing to hang out with the other apostles who had encountered Christ. Now, I'm going to have you do this real quick. Turn to the person next to you 
just to kind of keep you awake, keep you going here, keep you stimulated, and ask them and to see if they know what book of the Bible demonstrates this truth, demonstrates the truth that faith is bringing your questions, doubts, and fears to God. There's a whole book in the Bible that kind of demonstrates this for us, and you see this written out in this book of the Bible. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Turn to the person next to you and see if they know, real quick. Okay, I think I heard somebody say it out there. Anybody think in Psalms? Yeah, you guys are right on. Psalms is an amazing book in the Bible that demonstrates this point. Faith is bringing your questions, doubts, and fears to God. In fact, let me read to you Psalm 13, verses 1 and 2. See if this is, it doesn't prove that. Bringing your questions, doubts, and fears to God. This is the psalmist. He says, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How many have ever felt like that before? It's like, God, where are you? Are you going to keep hiding from me? Where in the world are you? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all, all the day? It's like, this has been going on for a long time. God, I'm struggling here. How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? So that's just a, an example of that. So struggling with God over the issues of life doesn't show a lack of faith. That is faith. That is faith. As you're working through your doubts, you're letting those doubts take you to God and take you towards belief rather than unbelief. Third point on your notes, Christianity is historical, evidential, factual, beyond a reasonable doubt. So this is what I'd hope to try to convince you of throughout this series. Christianity is historical, evidential, factual, beyond a reasonable doubt. Now, this is interesting. In verse 25 of our text, the disciples told Thomas that they had seen the Lord. And the Greek literally means that they kept telling him they had seen him. So they, it wasn't just like, the, hey, we've seen the Lord. But they go, listen, dude, come on. We've seen the Lord. Well, I, I just don't believe. Not unless I can put my finger where he, you know, where he was wounded. No, come on. We've seen the Lord. So they were really working him. They were trying to convince him. That's literally what, the, what it says in the Greek. And uh, he continues to, to struggle. Most of life must be negotiated on the basis of determining probability factors when you really look at life. And, and so in our court of law, when a jury is selected to determine the outcome of a case, they are asked to evaluate the evidence and make their decision beyond a reasonable doubt, not beyond a shadow of a doubt. You guys know that. Why is that? Why is that distinction? They wouldn't say, hey, beyond a, beyond a shadow of a doubt, you need to make your decision. No, they say beyond a reasonable doubt. Why is that? Because you will always have doubts. That's where we live. Everything in all of our decisions are based on probability. You will always have some doubts. In life, we make decisions based on probability, not on absolute certainty. Take, for instance, you know, your next car that you purchase. When you buy your next car, you're not absolutely certain that it won't be a lemon, even with the evidence of previous experiences with the same model and the testimony of others and information from a buyer's guide. You don't know beyond a shadow of a doubt. You know beyond a reasonable doubt because you've accumulated the evidence. But it could be a lemon. So, so we live in a society, we live in a world today, in our world, 
We live beyond a reasonable doubt, meaning that there will always be a measure of doubt. It's based, based on probability. Let me give you an example of someone who struggled with doubt, who is certainly a very godly man. Would you guys agree with me that John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus, was probably pretty godly? You know, he was a little bit of a nut job, you know, but, uh, uh, you know, he, he seemed a little bit odd, you know, honey and locust, never had that before, uh, wore camel hair, and it was, you know, he was kind of a dude out in the desert, you know, proclaiming the gospel, trying to help people to come to repentance. So pretty radical in a lot of ways, but pretty godly. And in fact, it says John the Baptist in John one twenty nine, this is what he said about Jesus. He said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's, that's the proclamation, the declaration he made. In Mark one eleven, it says this, when he, uh, when he baptized Jesus, he personally witnessed the heavens opening up and God proclaiming, you are my son in whom I am well pleased. You're my beloved son in whom I am. So he heard that from heaven. In John one thirty four. This is what he said about Jesus. I have seen and I testify that this is the Son of God. That's John the Baptist. Now, while John was in prison, how many remember what went down while he was in prison? He started having doubts. Remember that? And he sent message to Jesus. He sent some people and says, hey, would you go check to him with him and make sure he really is Messiah? <laughs> So here's a guy that's already made these pretty bold statements, and yet he's still struggling with some doubt. In fact, are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? That's what, that's what John the Baptist said. Jesus responds, this is Luke seven twenty two. go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, and the deaf hear, uh, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. And then later on, Jesus compliments John. He says, I tell you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. So, so what I'm saying is, here's a very godly man, a very, a one that who had encountered the living, you know, Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and yet he struggled with doubts. There will always be a measure of doubt. In our life, there will always be some things in our life that we will, we, we will struggle with. So let me go back to that point. Christianity is historical, evidential, and factual beyond a reasonable doubt. As long as you don't commit intellectual suicide. If you're willing to roll up your sleeves and dive in and begin to see the evidence. Now, number four on your notes. It's not the size, but the object of your faith that matters most. Did you notice Thomas's response when he finally, it kind of dawned on him, this is the Messiah? What did he say? He goes, my Lord and my God. I mean, it's a defining moment in his life um, that Jesus is not just, he's just not God, deity, but he's Lord, he's master, he's boss, he's ruler. I belong to him. Everything belongs to him. He's the one that I bow down to. He calls the shots. I was created by him for him to give glory to him. That's the point. He comes to terms with that, and he begins to realize the, the greatness and the, and the goodness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, uh, and in that, it really emphasizes that it's not the size of our faith, but it's the object of our faith that matters most. In fact, uh, how many are familiar with uh, the mustard seed faith analogy that Jesus, and how many have ever seen a mustard seed? Not unless you're standing right over it and you can barely see it. And he says, if you have the faith of a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, be moved. In other words, what he's saying, 
He's saying that if you have a small amount of faith in a real big God, big things happen. And in essence, that's what's true about us. Though I may struggle with my, with my faith, if I put my faith in Jesus, I can see some really big things happen. In fact, there's an interesting story found in Mark uh, 9, 23 and 24. Remember when Jesus and his disciples came down from the Mount Transfiguration? <coughs> Excuse me. And, uh, and the disciples are trying to cast out a demon out of this uh, young boy. And they can't get it done. And then uh, Jesus comes up to this guy and he says to him, the father of this young boy who has this demon, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. I love it. I mean, how often have we been there? Yes, I do believe, but oh, I, I struggle with unbelief. And, and Jesus works a miracle in his life. So it's not the size, it's not the size as much as the object. I mean, it, it works like this. Let me give you an uh, illustration. I've used this before. Imagine you're hiking and you lose your footing. You're up on a hill, you lose your footing, you begin to fall off of a high cliff. There's a branch sticking out of the side of the cliff that is your only hope and more than strong enough to support your weight. So as you're falling, there's this branch sticking out. It's your only hope, strong enough to support your weight. How can it save you? If you are intellectually certain that the branch can hold you, but you don't reach out and grab it, you will fall to your death. But if your mind is filled with doubts and uncertainty that the branch can hold you, but you reach out and grab it anyway, you will be saved. You guys tracking with me? It's not the size, but the object of your faith that matters most. Strong faith in a weak branch is fatally inferior to weak faith in a strong branch. Jesus is a strong branch. So in our flailing, in our falling, we, we cling to him. You reach out to him. In your doubt, in your struggle with unbelief, if you will reach out to him, the object of your faith, he will save you. Takes us to the next point, number five. Get to know the object of your faith and your trust will grow. So how do I grow in my faith? So it's not the size of my faith, but it's the object, but how do I, how do I get my faith to grow bigger so I have less doubts and less questions? Well, you get to know the object of your faith. Get to know the object of your faith and, and your trust will grow. How many have ever met someone before and the more you got to know them, the more you realize, I can't trust this guy or gal. Show of hands? Yeah. But then there are other people that the more you got to know them, though you might not have trusted them initially, but the more you got to know them because of their level of integrity and character and who they are, you go, wow, I could trust them with anything because they have proved themselves to be trustworthy. It's the same with Jesus. Why do you struggle with faith? You need to get to know him. That's why you struggle with faith. That's why you struggle with trusting him. I'm just really struggling with trusting him. The answer isn't somehow to muster up more trust or more faith. The answer is get to know, focus on the object of your faith. See, that's what it's telling you. Get to know the object of your faith. Spend time with him. Get to know him. And, and so when he says, so when he says, my Lord and my God, in essence, this is what he's saying, the uncreated creator and sustainer of the heavens and the earth loves me and cares for me. See, I don't really even think that you're a believer until you have one of those my Lord and my God moments in your life. 
for you, it just kind of all of a sudden dawns on you go, oh my goodness, this is God in the flesh. And he loves me. It's almost one of those moments where you go, wow. Wow, his greatness combined with his goodness. Mm, he's going to take care of me. He's great, but he's good. And that's one of those moments that, uh, that Thomas has. And that's what, kind of one of those moments we need to have. And, and you're not a believer until you, you make that. You make that proclamation and you begin to live in that more and more each and every day. There's a major difference between knowing that Jesus is with you and knowing the Jesus that is with you. You can kind of know in a general way, yeah, I know, God's with me. No, no, no. Do you know the Jesus that is with you? My Lord and my God. Have there been times in your life where he has so dazzled you with his beauty and his glory and, and the person and work of what he's done for you that it stirs within you such feelings of amazement that you can never get over him? See, that's, a, that's one of those my Lord and my God moments. It's like, oh my goodness, this is crazy. You are God. You died for me. I mean, you, talk, you want your faith to begin to soar? His faith was soaring at that, at that moment. When he has this face-to-face encounter with the living Lord. I mean, before, I'm not going to believe unless I can actually. Well, guess what? He never actually puts his fingers in, in the wounds. He just looks at him and he's like, oh, my Lord and my God. He's just overwhelmed. My, my prayer every week is that you would have one of those encounters right here every weekend service. Then you come in and you go, oh, because that's, that's where, that's the root of all of our issues. The reason why we have inordinate anxiety and anger and depression is because we're not living in, in the reality of my Lord and my God. That the creator and the sustainer of the heavens and the earth loves me and gave his life for me. And if he would do that, he's going to take care of me. And I can rest in him. And though I might be struggling right now, but I'm going to cling to him like that branch sticking out of the side of the cliff. I'm going to cling to him because I know that he can save me. And he will see me through what I'm struggling with. There's no greater profession of faith. This is what it means Really, to be a Christian and to grow as a Christian, my Lord and my God. So how do we do that? Let me just give you a couple thoughts here. Is that we need to listen to the apostles. And that's what Jesus was rebuking him. He said, hey, you should have listened to the apostles. You should have listened to the other guys. They encountered me. You weren't listening to them. And as I said, it's, uh, verse 25 is in the present progressive verb. They kept on telling him, but he just wouldn't hear them. And so Jesus shows up, rebukes him for not listening. So how do we listen to the apostles? We read this book. Faith comes by hearing, hearing what? The Word of God. This was written by people who encountered the living Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The resurrected Lord and Savior. It tells us, in, and that says in Romans 10, 17, 1 Peter 2, 2 through 3, it says, As newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk so that you might grow. So the more you study God's Word, in fact, remember... What I read, he says, hey, these things were written. Many more things were done by Jesus that are not put down. But these were written that you might what? That you might believe, and believing you might have life. That you might believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and that by putting your faith in him, man, you're going to have a life unlike you've ever experienced before. That's what he's saying. And so we do that to the study of God's word. That's why this book is so important. That's why we study it week in and week out. 
Also, how do we kind of uh, grow in our trust in God? I think that you need to know that he knows your struggles with faith and is patient with you. Did you notice that no one told Jesus about what, what Thomas said? Thomas, uh, Thomas said, not until I put my fingers in his wounds. Nobody told Jesus that. But did you notice what Jesus said when he shows up? One of the first things he says? Thomas, come over here. Come here, put your fingers in my wounds here. Of course, Thomas doesn't do that, but he's just saying, hey, dude, I heard you. I know your struggle. I love you. You know those nights that you have, those sleepless nights? You're kind of wondering, is anybody out there? Does anybody really care? He hears that. He knows that. He loves you. He's going to use the circumstances of your life to draw your heart closer to him. So the more you understand that, the more you live in the reality of it. And then, and then notice what he says, that what really got a hold of Thomas more than anything is that he looked at his wounds. So that's, that's when you look at his wounds, this will transition us to the end and we're going to take communion this morning. But as you look at his wounds, what, are the, what, is his, what do his wounds tell you about him? Oh my goodness. He who did not spare his own son, but freely gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him freely give us all things? Romans 31 and 32, if God is for us, who can be against us? Look at his wounds. Gaze upon the beauty of his wounds. I was told that there's only going to be one thing man-made in heaven, and that's the wounds of Jesus. We will see his wounds, and we will be amazed, and we will be blown away at, at his beauty and his glory and what he was willing willing to do for us. You cannot meet the creator of the universe and understand what he's done for you on the cross and remain the same. I couldn't help but think that possibly Thomas, as, he's, as, he, as he has this encounter with the resurrected Lord and Savior and sees his wounds, he's almost saying to himself, how can I come to grips with someone who has given himself utterly for me without me giving myself utterly for him? That's why he said, my Lord and my God. It's a declaration of faith. Here's the last point on your notes. You can reason to a point of probability, but it takes commitment to lead to certainty. Those of you that are going to be helping us out with communion, you can make your way back, back there right now and get the communion elements. As we kind of wrap up our time together this morning. <coughs> you can reason to a point of probability, but it takes commitment to lead to certainty. My wife, a number of years ago, was going to have surgery, and so she started kind of... Uh, kind of looking, accumulating the facts and the evidence, who would be the better surgeon and who's most specialized in this particular area. And as she began to accumulate the facts and searching for that, uh, you know, as I said, beyond a reasonable doubt, you know, negotiating based on determining probability factors, you know. And so as she did that, she came to terms that she was going to select this particular doctor, this particular surgeon, Fortunately, we have quite a number of people that are in the medical industry here, Desert Breeze, doctors and, you know, EMTs and medics and all kinds of people that are involved in that whole industry. And so she began to share that with, with one of the nurses that attends here. And this nurse looked at her like, what? You're going to have that doctor do what? And, and the, this nurse said, that doctor has a real high rate of infection, infection rate post-surgery. And Nancy goes, what? Oh, we're going to get another doctor. And so we, we selected another doctor, and, and the rest of the story is kind of history. She went through it perfectly without any infections or any problems like that. But she immediately went from one doctor to another doctor based on the, the facts 
But even the doctor that she had chosen, regardless of, you know, reasoning beyond, beyond the point of, you know, probability, reasonable doubt, uh, she still had to, at some point, go under the knife. Because you can accumulate all the evidence. You can reason to a point of probability, but it takes commitment to lead to certainty. She had to go under the knife. And now she can say with certainty that this doctor actually did her good. I mean, took care of her. And, and, and that's how it is with Jesus. You can reason to a point of probability, but it takes commitment. See, there, there's three phases of, of faith. The first phase is where you begin to understand that it takes just as much faith not to believe as it does to believe. The second stage is that as you begin to accumulate the facts, you begin to realize, hey, wait a minute, it takes more faith not to believe than to believe. And then the third phase is that you can reason to a point of probability, but it takes commitment to lead to certainty. And when Thomas says, my Lord and my God, he's, Thomas is saying, I'm ready to go under the knife. I'm giving my life to him. Two things that that involves. It, it involves a commitment. This level of commitment involves dropping all conditions and then seeking him with all of your heart. Let me just talk about that just for a minute, dropping all your conditions. If you ever say, I will obey you if you do X, whatever you put in X, I will obey you if you do X for me, the X is your real Lord and Savior. The X is the thing you're living for. Did you notice Thomas dropped all conditions? He didn't even reach out and touch him after that. He says, no, you're God. I'm dropping all conditions. You're God. I'm going for you. That's what commitment is. But commitment is more than that. It's also seeking him with all of your heart. And belief is not just an agreement with facts in the head, but it's an appetite for God in the heart that, that exceeds all other appetites. Bow your heads with me. Let's pray. They're going to be passing out the communion elements in a moment. And if you're a believer this morning, feel free to take the communion elements, hang on to them, and we'll walk you through the process of communion. If you're not a believer, just let it go by. You can become a believer this morning by... By saying, as Thomas said, my Lord and my God, acknowledging that he is Lord and God and giving your life to him. God, thank you this morning as we wrap up this series that uh, we know that faith is, as C.S. Lewis says, is the art of holding on to things your reason has once accepted in spite of your changing moods. And God, our moods go up and down, and yet we know, we know beyond a reasonable doubt, and we've, we have chosen to make a commitment to you. You are our Lord and our God. We give our lives to you. God, continue your work in our lives, we pray. And even now, may we have one of those moments. May we be able to lay aside all of our cares, our problems, our issues as we take communion, as we have this encounter with you, as we, as, as Thomas did, as we look at your wounds. May it stir up greater levels of faith within us, we pray in Jesus' name. I wonder what the, uh, <laughs> the other apostles, the other disciples must have thought about Thomas when he was so resistant initially and said, I'm not, I don't believe until I actually put my fingers in his wounds and then finally had that encounter with him and he makes, and this is really the climax of the book is that my Lord and my God, that's the point that, Paul, that uh, John has been trying to get across throughout the whole book. And he makes that declaration of faith, my Lord and my God. He was never the same after that. It was almost like, how can I come to terms? How can I come to grips with someone who has given himself utterly for me without me giving myself utterly to him? And when we take the communion elements this morning...
as we look at his wounds for us, I mean, they are so profound. Unbelievable. By him being resurrected, he's basically, he's conquered death, hell, the grave, our sins. All of my sins are completely forgiven. Never to be held against me again. That's one of the implications. Another implication of this is that that he indwells me with his presence, that no matter what I face, I will have enough in him and his empowering presence in my life to be able to overcome any, any trial or any temptation. Pretty significant. But also it means that my future is secure in him. So my past is taken care of, my present problems can be managed, and my future is secure because when I take my last breath on earth, I take my first with him for all eternity. So that's really, when we look at these elements... That's what we're acknowledging. Oh, my goodness. And, and, and we come as we are with all of our questions, doubts, and fears, and we come to him and we, we find our deepest satisfaction in him. We don't have to get our act together. We come to him and it's in, in this encounter with him that begins to transform us. It's, it's focusing our eyes upon the object of our faith, the Lord Jesus Christ, who loves us and gave himself for us. And so the, on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it and he said, this represents my body broken for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. Let's take together. And that same night he took the cup. He says, this is the new covenant, the new agreement. And this represents my shed blood for you. Let's drink in remembrance of him. So God, we pray this morning that no matter whatever, whatever kind of doubt and struggles and questions and fears that haunt us and harass us, even those moments where we feel like we're all alone, we know that we're not because you, you once and for all have established that truth through the giving of your life for us, that you will never, ever leave us or forsake us. Nothing can ever separate us from your love. We thank you for the certainty of that. And may the reality of that dispel the darkness in our lives so that we can live more and more for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with me? Hey, we wrap up this series. We start in two weeks a brand new series. Next weekend, our youth are going to be giving testimony of the great changes that God has brought to their life. You're not going to want to miss next weekend. They're going to do the, how many are familiar with the everything drama that we've done here before. Pretty powerful drama. This would be a great weekend for you to invite uh, unchurched family and friends. Pretty impactful. And so we're going to be doing that next week. Then we're going to go back into the book of Nehemiah for four weeks, talk about how God wants to reignite our lives, set our lives on fire with a greater passion for him. And so my blessing for you this morning is it tells us in a uh, Hebrews eleven six. without faith it is impossible to please God. Forever would come to him must believe that he exists and he is a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. And so as you come to him each and every day, believe that he is with you and will never leave you or forsake you. And always remember this, that he is a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. And so as you diligently seek him, may you find him and may you experience him unlike you've ever experienced before. And may that experience with him dispel the darkness in your life and increase your faith substantially for his glory and your satisfaction in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. amen. God bless you.